Welcome back. This is the Just Say Rad podcast. My name is Raddy Ann Simon Play, film critic for CTV's Your Morning and Now Magazine. Today, my guest is Andre Domize. Andre is a columnist at McLean's Magazine. He's also the communications co-chair at the Black Business and Professionals Association. And he also wrote a wonderful article in the Globe and Mail last week about what Black Panther meant to him. Uh, and of course, that's what we're going to have a great big spoiler-heavy conversation about. Black Panther. You, on the weekend, uh, organized, I, I think it was you that um, was the main organizer of like a charity screening. I don't know if I should even call it a charity screening, but you managed to get a lot of kids to come out and see Black Panther. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so uh, you can call it a charity screening if you want to. It's um, we. So when the, the movie was announced and I saw the marketing leading up to the, the release, um, myself and one of my colleagues at the BBPA, Tisha Reed, thought, wouldn't it be great if we were able to take a bunch of kids from the community and let them go see Black Panther? Because, I mean, let's just be real, tickets are expensive, mm -hmm. you know, and not every family, is, if you've got like a, you know, two, three kids, like, that could be a whole lot of money that you're dropping to go see this movie. Yeah. But we want young people to see this movie and be inspired by it. So why don't we just take out the cost factor? So we put together a fundraiser, and the original idea was we would have... Because uh, the, the, the price of the ticket, the 3D ticket, is $16.50. And then there's the price of the popcorn mm -hmm. and the drinks and the candy. But we're not going to have a bunch of kids in the movie theater with no popcorn and candy. Yeah. Right? So it came out to be around $30 a seat. So we figured if we can uh, raise enough money to take 200 kids to see the movie, that's about $6,000. Mm -hmm. We were hoping and praying when we put the fundraiser together and then started boosting it on social media that we might be able to raise that money within two weeks. We raised that money in less than six hours. That's amazing. And within eight hours, we'd raised over $13,000. So instead of taking uh, 200 kids, we ended up taking 447 young people and their parents, guardians, mentors, you know, whichever um, groups we're able to come all together. Yeah. Obviously, you want to have like people to watch over the kids as well, right? right so they yeah. needed tickets as well. Um, in total, we raised just under $16,000. And then, obviously, you don't need $16,000 to take 450 people to see a movie, even if it is at Cineplex. Uh, so we took the extra funds that were left over, and we're putting it towards a program so that young people who are interested in TV and film making, whether it's acting, directing, producing, um, screenwriting, etc., even if you want to be a stunt actor... Uh, there's actually going to be a lady who's been a stunt coordinator on X-Men films. Mm. And she's going to be teaching the kids stunt work. That's awesome. So there's going to be workshops you know, at the BBPA uh, head office and also around Toronto so that young people who saw this movie and are inspired by it, that they can then um, you know, find mentorship and a pathway to create their own movies because we want to see more dope stories like this one. That's amazing. Well, how did you find the kids? Like, Where did you get them from? Everywhere. I mean, you know, the BBPA has been around for you know a couple of decades and... Uh, uh, couple it's like like three decades now holy smokes huh. and uh so obviously there's some really deep community ties that we've forged uh, but then there's also you know like we reached out to uh toronto district school board trustee tiffany ford mm. who has you know obviously access to the the youths that go to school in her ward uh, we reached out to mitzi hunter the minister of education to let her know like hey we'd love to have you come along we reached out to schools we reached out to after school programs like we just reached out to everybody that we could like we just pulled out our contacts 
and then email blasted everybody to let them know, hey, by the way, like we have raised all this money. Mm-hmm. Your kids get to co- see this movie for free. And even if you need bus tokens, we've got those too. So get them down here. We'll make sure that you get bus tokens for your trip back. Like we're going to take away all the obstacles that would be in the in the way of you coming to see this movie. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it worked. Like uh, Saturday morning, because it was a, a Saturday morning screening at 9 a.m. And at about 8.50 in the morning, I was in the theater. Obviously, if you're organizing an event like this, you're going to be like running from place to place, just making sure that everything is copacetic. But I, I stopped for a moment, and I looked up at the the, uh, the auditorium, and I saw all these kids in their seats, and they're like laughing, they're cracking jokes with each other, they're sharing popcorn, some of them are throwing a little bit of popcorn at each other. Yeah. And I'm like, man, this is exactly what we wanted to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so it was, uh, it was dope. It was a really good event. That's the thing. I mean, because I uh, I took my kids to see it on the weekend, and yeah. I was just like, I kind of want to be at that screening, you know, like just be around a bunch of kids as opposed to other kids that people like. Was, the screening that I took them to, there wasn't that many kids. It was a mm-hmm. lot of adults. And the big thing is, I mean, of course, I'm not black. Like my kids, you know, like so I'm Sri Lankan. I mean, a lot of people confuse me for being black, but like, <laughs> you know. Uh, but the thing is, I mean, it was important for me to take my kids this weekend because. They don't, you know, we talk about representation in movies, mm-hmm. and we see a lot of it a lot of it lately in terms of movies like Get Out, Moonlight, and World, we keep, like, celebrating these movies that come out, but not a lot for kids' movies. I re- right. You know, like, uh, I, I realized, like, my son, the other, like, um, a couple weeks ago, I was taking him to an audition, and he was like, I wish I had blonde hair, because that's what they would pick. Oh. And you never mind that this, this is a commercial that was set in Jamaica... It was a it was for a commercial set in Jamaica uh, opposite Usain Bolt, but he's you know he just has it in his head that that's what they pick for movies and television because when you look at children's entertainment, that is all you see. The yeah, representation yeah. factor hasn't really hit what kids get to see, and what that's the that, most vital moment, right? What does that do to you as a parent to have your child like look at you before he's even found out whether or not he got the part, yeah. and thinking like, oh, I really wish I didn't look like me well I was shocked for me I was shocked because I mean I would for like I think my son is privileged and my kids are privileged in the way that they kind of live in a racial utopia where yeah his grandfather has blonde hair blue eyes but his uh, his grandmother is uh, Latin American, and his, par- his other grandparents, my parents, are very brown and stuff. And so, like, I mean, and then just the people we're surrounded by. His godfather's Trini. Like, you know, like, there's... No, I, I wouldn't think that that kind of thing will come out of my child's mouth mm-hmm. because of what he grew up around. And uh, But the thing is, he still said it, right? But your child also lives in Canada. Exactly. He lives yeah. in Canada. I mean, like, the thing is, our neighborhood, we live in Leslieville, so he is surrounded by a lot of white people because of that. Yeah. But, like, I again, because he's surrounded by that, I was shocked that he said it. And the only reason I could peg it, the only thing I could peg it to is, well, this is what he's seeing on screens, you know? Like, I mean, that's the only reason he has this in his head, right? Well, that's the thing. uh, And this has been a topic in literary circles and and, uh, children's media circles for a very long time, which is that uh, youth of color don't have anybody to look up to. They don't see themselves represented on screen. I remember when uh, this film was getting a lot of the, uh, uh, you know, the the media buzz over the last six weeks. Um, every time you talk about, you know, this is the first Marvel Comics Universe superhero uh, that's a, a black character, and all of the supporting cast are also black characters, some bozo would jump up and say, oh, well, Marvel released Blade, and wasn't that good enough for you? And, or, yeah, but Blade was also an R-rated movie. Yeah. You couldn't take your kids to see Blade. Are you no. out of your mind? <laughs> exactly. you know, and then that was 20 years ago. So what, we got, you know, three Blade films. Uh, that started 20 years ago. Oh, that should be enough for y'all. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. How many movies have come out in that span of time that starred white characters? Yeah. Get the fuck out Exactly. Of here. Well, and the thing is, it's just like we are missing the fact that it's more crucial that the kids see it at that developing stage 
to see those figures as opposed to when we see for a Blade movie is just for adults where yeah. I think I, you would hope that we have our own sense of identity. Well, stuff, the thing right? is like you and I were both children at one time mm-hmm. and it was hard to imagine like me with all my gray hair, but <laughs> we were young and you know, I, I, I'm a child of the 80s when I grew up, like the only time that you could really ever watch TV and see entertainment that you could relate to was on Saturday mornings. And mm-hmm. I, I tell you that I did not see a single Saturday morning cop to, cartoon except for cops. Do you remember cops? Yeah, they they had some weird gadgets like uh, like extendo handcuffs yeah, and shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. I do remember cops. that. Yeah, and did uh, it have so the same logo as the other show cops? The no, 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 no. Okay, no, no, no. As a matter of fact, one because the 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 Fox show cops, which was basically just like white cops beating black people's asses for yeah, about yeah. half an hour. Uh, th- that came out after the children's TV show cops. Really, and okay. I'll tell you that. When I watched that TV show Cops, who, which had a black police chief, his mm. name was Bulletproof Vest, BP Vest, okay. um, that, that show actually made me look up to and appreciate police officers. Right. And then uh, the Fox TV show Cops came on, and the first time I watched that show, it completely shattered my view of what police officers were. Right. Because this, this is the actual real world. Yeah. Right? So as far as like representation, like I got, I got started really early down that path of, Wow, like there's just really nothing out there for me. Like yeah. even this this show that I really enjoyed, now it's ruined because this is what cops operate like in real life. Yeah, and I don't think I was that thoughtful as a child, you know. Like, <laughs> no, I mean because when I'm seeing representation, then what I mean, I think what it would have instilled in me is a sort of self hate, like in in the same way that where my son is, thinks he needs to have blonde hair. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I would have had to feel felt like I needed to bury my own identity, you know, because this is you yeah. know the and ideal. You, and you read the comic books too, and you hardly see any representation for yourself in the comic books I, I used to write a lot of stories like I used to write a lot of like stories just for myself mm-hmm. as a child sometimes I would submit them to school and they told me that I should keep writing and well this is what happens yeah. um, but when I would write stories for myself as a kid the protagonists were always white boys yeah and I, I never stopped to consider why that was until I grew up and you know I realized it's because if if you tell a story like what I've been told my mm-hmm. entire life is that when you tell a story you have to start with a white boy right, right right and and you know everything else comes after that so yeah it is super important for for young people to see themselves represented on that screen because and you look at also you know this is not the end of it Ava DuVernay's A Wrinkle in Time is coming out just around the corner yeah and I wish I, we had more breathing room to no, you know, enjoy I, Black no, I'm glad. He, yeah. I'm glad for the onslaught the one-two punch yeah I'm, I'm absolutely glad for that because now I mean black girls got to see themselves represented in the Dora Milaje right in this film but you, it's not a movie for black children. It's a movie you can take black children to. Right. A Wrinkle in Time is entirely... It's a, it's a children's story. Uh-huh. And the protagonist of the film is a black girl. Right, like, right. That is absolutely revolutionary. Because I've got two girls on the way. And, you know, we just had our baby shower this past weekend. And luckily we got a lot of very thoughtful gifts, including a lot of books yeah. from friends of ours that understand the importance of black girls developing a sense of confidence and pride in themselves. So we got a lot of books about, like black girl hair we got a lot of uh, books about uh, you know black girls thinking that they're pretty books about civic engagement books about indigenous people but that's from people who knew to take the time to to seek out those particular books maybe order them on amazon or yeah. go to specialty bookstores like a a, a different uh, book list and get those books but if you go to chapters for example and look for a, a book for a young black girl yeah. that she can relate to and identify with, you're going to have a very hard time finding a protagonist that she feels looks like her and represents her. Uh, okay. You know? So I, I think that is like of the utmost importance because out of all people on this planet, the, the people I would say that have historically been the most devalued, I mean, like the, the value of their labor is 
you can't put a number on it. Mm. But the value of having them like have self esteem, there's been no value on that whatsoever. And that's uh, to me, that's just been black women. Yeah. Like throughout history, you know, they've they've held up our movements. Uh, they've 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 you know acted as revolutionaries. They've basically like been the what holds together the social fabric in the black community. Mm. And I, I think it's really about time that young black girls start seeing themselves represented in positive ways. Yeah. yeah no. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, I wanted to let's. In terms of the movie, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah in terms of the movie, movie I want to know, <laughs> what did these kids get out of it? I mean, like, you know what? Because the reason, I mean, I was, uh, I read your article in the Globe and Mail on Black Panther, and I, I love the part where, I, I love that <coughs> where you kind of, I mean, I didn't, I don't think I latched on to the fact that, like, um, what's that guy that plays um, the competing tribal leader? Oh, uh, M'Baku. M- M'Baku, yeah. So, Have you not been, like, reading Twitter over the weekend? Because... Well, I mean, oh, I, I know, but there's I, like there's, a tsunami of thirst su- over this guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, the thing is, no, but, but you're, I read your piece first because I think it came out on the Wednesday a week ago, and yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I remember you pointed out that it, the, the joke where he comes off as a savage because he's like, oh, we're going to eat, uh, yeah, 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 feed yeah. you to my children, and then, and then, then he reveals, we're, we're vegetarian. But, and I love that yeah. you pointed out that this is him flipping the stereotype, right? Yeah. So, I mean... Um, I mean, what other jokes were there that maybe I didn't catch on to? The movie is full of code. Like that was an example of code switching, right? Mm-hmm. And you know you have to understand the context of that scene. When this is where you know uh, Nakia and um, Shuri and I forget the queen mother's name. Yeah. Um, Angela based- Bassett. Yeah, just- Angela Bassett's character. <laughs> yeah. Angela Bassett. But you know they they had they had to run away uh, because Killmonger had basically taken over Wakanda. Mm-hmm. You know he'd taken over the uh, the, the the throne. Uh, so they had to run away for fear of their lives. And they, with them, they carried uh, the CIA agent Everett Ross. Yeah. Now, they're, you know, Everett Ross is a stranger in a strange land. Like, he knows nothing about these, these people, their culture, except for, like, the preconceptions that he had, which were, like, strange enough that he would actually, like, put his hand on the shoulder of a king. Right, right, right. Yeah. Like, he had, you could, you could tell that he hardly had any respect for T'Challa, you know, until he actually got to Wakanda and saw how majestic the country was, but he still, as a white guy, didn't really know when to shut the fuck up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, so they're they're in the throne room of uh, Chief Mbaku of the Jabari tribe, and they're explaining themselves and you know saying that listen, like we need to give you the arch the heart shaped herb because basically you're the the only person that can challenge Killmonger and, and possibly like get this country back into some semblance of order, and then. Agent Ross opens his mouth and starts talking. Nobody asks this white boy to talk, you know? <laughs> and Nubaku looks at him, like, with this look on his face, like, like how dare you? And he starts barking at him. Yeah. Who? 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 And then everybody in the in the room, all the other Jabari, start barking at him, too, which was just absolutely hilarious to me because, again, like, that itself was flipping a stereotype on its head. Like, black people have been conflated to primates and apes and monkeys mm-hmm. for... Like, as long as we've had scientific racism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the character M'Baku in the comics, his name is Manape. You know, he, he was a black man that they put into a white gorilla costume. Uh. And he was one of the most hated characters among the black community because it's like, like, like what were you thinking putting a black man in an ape costume yeah. and calling him Manape? Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, who, who's now the writer for Black Panther... Hated M'Baku so much. Wait, when you say, sorry, can I yeah. just clarify this? Now yeah. the writer, or did he not did he not just write a series, a specific series at a certain time? Oh, no, no, he's, he's the, the, the writer, but, oh, okay. um, you know, but he, he, uh, he didn't introduce, like, he would, he didn't create the character. No, no, yeah. The, yeah, the character's, you know, been in the comics for decades, but, uh, 
you know, everyone sort of struggled with how to really, like, convey how fucked up this character is. Yeah. And uh, Tom Hazy Coach brought him back just to kill him. <laughs> like, killed him off in, in, in one comic. Right. What, what uh, this film did was make him actually, like, one of the, the fan faves for this movie. So he's, like, gorilla barking at this white guy. And then whenever Ross silences himself, M'Baku looks at him and says, if you speak again, I'm going to feed you to my children. <laughs> yeah. And then this, like, test beat sort of hangs in the air for a second. And even, you know, when I'm watching it, I'm thinking, like, man, did they really go there? Like, with the African cannibal? Like, yeah. really? And then he just laughs. He's like, just kidding. We're vegetarians. <laughs> and, then he, and then he laughs for, like, a solid 15 seconds after that. Stuff like that. Things like, um, you know, the way that... Uh, uh, Ulysses Claw is working with with Killmonger, and he thinks that Killmonger is just like you know this this uh, this American um, like you know hotshot mercenary who is just trying to get rich. Yeah. You know, and they they steal this uh, this vibranium. It looked like a warhammer to me. Yeah. You know, from uh, from from the museum in London, and here he is thinking that you know uh, Killmonger is an American, and at the end of his life, you know, when Killmonger's got a gun to his head. He Killmonger pulls down his lower lip, and you see the Wakandan tattoo inside of his lip. Yeah. Killmonger's like, oh, I thought you were just a crazy American. Yeah. Because Killmonger basically fooled him through code switching. Right, right, right. At the very beginning of the movie, you know, you have two characters that fool each other through code switching. Like the, like the two characters that the film starts with, mm -hmm. uh, Sterling K. Brown's character, and then the character who ends up going up to become Forrest Whitaker's character, Zuri. Mm. So, you know, you have uh, Njobu and Zuri, who've been working together probably for years, and... When the door and Milaje show up at Njobu's doorstep and they come inside, you know, he all of a sudden he realizes, like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm found out. Yeah. You know, the King T'Chaka shows up and then Njobu switches from this, like, Oakland accent to a Wakandan accent. Yeah. Like, you see his accent switch immediately. And then, uh, you know, James, the, the guy who's also Wakandan, but we don't know that yet, is looking at him like, like, why are you talking like that? Yeah. And then when, you know, when it turns out that T'Chaka's been keeping tabs... On Njobu the whole time, Njobu also pulls down his lower lip, and you see the tattoo, and then he reverts to that Wakandan accent. Right. So it's crazy how like, because we've talked about you know code switching. I think, um, I think, you know, a lot more in the last say four or five years, mm -hmm. where we adopt the language, the attitude, the posture, uh, the accents of the dominant cultures, so that we could fit in yeah. and hide our own true nature, so that we're not going to be denigrated. Um, but they use that as a weapon in the film. Mm -hmm. I thought that was I thought I thought that was simply amazing. Yeah. And what really got me is that I saw a video of Ryan Coogler sketching out uh, a fight scene that took place in the in the South Korean the casino. Tutorial video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, you know, as he's like you know sketching out exactly like what went into the making of this scene, he's speaking in this th like this this thick ass Oakland accent. I've never heard him speak any other way. I I and the thing yeah. is. But you no. Know, but what really got me though was that I think for a lot of people that was an introduction to Ryan Coogler, like mm. through the pressers and through this video. And I'm like, man, like it just struck me when I'm watching the video. He's like talking about his craft. Like you, you've you've seen him talk about hyping up movies before. Yeah. But you never really saw him explain the craft that goes into directing. And as he's explaining it, he's giving basically like a seven minute master class in, in creating a fight scene. It's delivered in this Oakland accent. I'm like, bro. Yeah. Like imagine the amount of people that have probably told him in his life that he needs to start speaking like well, a professional, yeah. Yeah. you know? And he doesn't do that. He stays true to his roots. And I thought that was, uh, that's, that really got me. Yeah. Um, if you, I mean, you give me long enough, I could pretty much sit here and dissect the subtext of the movie. Well, I, I know we don't have like, time for no. that. <laughs> it's like, well, in terms of subtext of the movie, I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I'm really 
so I because uh, I did take my kids uh, to see it again this last weekend, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I, uh, at, on a second viewing, I got to appreciate, I got to enjoy or savor Wakanda even more. Mm-hmm. Like, and I'm thinking specifically of like the ceremony, the the king, the the the, the throning ceremony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not the fight so much because I, I mean I'm not that the guy. I I don't love seeing fight scenes as much. They just don't interest me as much. But just the build up. To oh, the, it interested you know, me. It interested you okay, because of the fight style. Uh, so yeah, there's yeah. there's a couple of so there's a, a a South African stick fighting style which I've only seen in French. I'm not going to try and pronounce it out loud because mm. I'm probably going to fuck it up. Yeah. But um, there I, I saw a mix of that and capoeira, which is an Afro-Brazilian martial art. Uh-huh. It, it originated in Brazil, but it was also practiced by Angolan slaves. Yeah. And capoeira is you know it's one of those like those it's like a niche sort of a martial art like. You know, uh, it's not highly respected right. in the world of mixed martial arts. It looks like a very flashy sort of showy art. Um, but I, the the fighting style that was demonstrated in that scene yeah. seemed like a mix of those two arts put together. And right. I thought, like, man, they really did their research to not only, like, have... You, you could have just had your a regular old bland action scene. Mm-hmm. But it seemed like the, the producers put a whole lot of research into making sure that these people actually fought like Africans that had never been colonized. Right, right, yeah. You know, so that that actually stood out to me in addition to the uh, the, the, the backdrop same. itself. Well, that's, I mean, the, the whole idea of Africans never being colonized and seeing this culture that is untouched and has become richer all the, all, uh, untouched by history mm-hmm. and is r- richer because of it, right? So, I mean, like, this is what I was hoping you could break out to me because, like, now when I was watching that, re-watching again that, uh, that ceremony you know like the, the the different people coming out in their different boats the different tribes that come in yeah. their boats you know I know that there, there's no way to get this waterfall to like sink like that's not that's just another futurist example but in terms of I mean do you know do you have any feedback on like kind of the costumes they're wearing and the ceremony the, the oh ritual, my gosh the, 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 the shoulder yeah. the, uh, what do they do like you know, this, this is a day uh, the yeah yeah yeah, yeah. listen like um, there was a video I saw of uh, of um, a screening that took place in South Africa you know, and the people at the theater were just like so excited. They oh yeah, after the screening, where they're all celebrating dancing. Uh no 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 no. Oh. It, was, it looked like it was before the screening, and you know some of them like rolled out a mat, and these women like kneeled down on the mat, and they started doing this like this movement with their shoulders, right? Mm. Um, and you know, if you've seen um like ceremonies, like I'm not sure if you've ever seen like uh, Maasai dancing ceremonies. No, I don't know. <clears throat> so uh, sorry, uh, no, not the Maasai, the, the Dinka. Sorry, I'm getting my my. People messed up here, but yeah. you know, there's uh, the Dinka have this uh, the ceremony where they they show how high they can jump, uh. you know, and <clears throat> like there's there's these these small like cultural details that I found made their way into the film, and just looking at the different tribes of Wakanda, you can see how much of of that was absorbed into both the screenwriting and the production and the costume design. You know, there was there's one character um, who had like her hair was uh, was twisted with red ochre. You know, and there's a tribe in Tanzania that does that, that uses red ochre to uh, to create locks. Mm. You know, there's a, there's a male character, and I've you know this is not something you normally see in men because uh, with the uh, the Mercy tribe they have uh, plates in their lips. Yeah, and again, that's one of those things where people made fun of me as a black person growing up, talking about Africans with plate in their lips or a bone through their nose, or mm. you know, talking with a with that with, with the uh, Osa language. Um, they. They would use these 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 cultural artifacts to make fun of us and try to make us feel like lesser human beings, and in this film, that scene especially, it's like they've taken all that and then turned it into a point of pride. So you see a male character, who is probably like the 
flyest looking motherfucker in the whole film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, this dude's suit, like, I want to find out, you know, who his tailor is, but yeah. his suits are on point. And he's got this plate in his lip. And then there's a scene, you know, very shortly after that where, you know, uh, T'Challa and, uh, um, oh my gosh, I forget Lupita's character's name. Uh, Nakia. N- Nakia, yeah. They're, so they're walking through, listen, man, I'm getting into my late 30s. No, no, no I, I, I forget <laughs> things all the time, but they're walking through like an open air market and you see uh, more people from the River Tribe, her tribe, that have the plate in their lip. Um, getting back to that scene, you know, you see um, Daniel Kaluuya's character, Wukabi, you know, he's he's always wearing this uh, this cloak, and the yeah. cloak is called a basotho blanket, which is also like a, a, um, a thing that's very common in East Africa. You see that, like, you'll see everybody from, like, from uh, from business people to, like, you know, herders and merchants wearing the, the same cloak. Uh, and then later on, that cloak becomes, like, a part of a shield wall. Mm. So it, it was like... I could I could just sit down and watch that scene on loop forever and catch something new every single time. Yeah. And this is something that uh, the uh, the cast talked about was being able to film that scene for them was like one of the the most amazing experiences of their lives because in between takes, um, there were drummers who were you know it wasn't like obviously in an African waterfall it was filmed in a studio. Yeah. But the you know there were drummers all around the place and in between takes, um, they would drum um, drop it like it's hot. So they would draw and drop it like it's hot, and the the extras would make the sense, <laughs> and then everyone was like singing along with that song, and you know the uh, the every single cast member they were talking about like the most amazing experience, and even though they were filmed separately, they were saying like yeah, this was like the most memorable experience about the whole film is that we all came from like all corners of the world. There were people there from like Uganda, people there from Tanzania, people there from Kenya, people mm-hmm. there from Jamaica, people there from Trinidad, people from the States, people from the UK. Like black people from all over the planet in this one place at the same time and they're like they're bonding over a song. That yeah. Every single one of them knows. Like that to me is like that scene not only represents like a stride in filmmaking, but it also represents a stride in culture. Like right. how like where else would you be able to have a film that has that level of camaraderie, not only in the context of the film itself, but even when the cameras are off. That, right. to me, was amazing. Yeah, no, I think it was... You know, like, I mean, in terms of, like, those textures and things within the film, right? I mean, and this is another thing where I, I don't even think I noticed it the first time I saw it, but the second time I was like, fuck, this is the first Marvel movie where the score has, like, a hip-hop bass line. Yeah. You know, like, it yeah, just, yeah. It just those kind of textures to it to make it feel like it's a movie that belongs can I, to... Can the, I say something, Yeah, though? go ahead. I love the score. Yeah, I I I didn't like the soundtrack. You mean the songs? The, the Black Panther soundtrack, like like the Kendrick produced ones. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't well, a fan. Well, you know what? I, I how many how many how many continental African artists were on that soundtrack? Weren't they all? That's what I thought. That I thought no, what was great about were, that were, soundtrack. I think two. Really? I think I think two at most. Okay. You know, uh, one of them who I because I heard that she was going to be on the soundtrack and I was like I was super excited. The thing is like um, last year. I went down this like rabbit hole of discovering South African house music, and I'm yeah. like, "Y'all people have been keeping this from us. What is wrong with you? Like, <laughs> we, we, we need more of this." Yeah. And one of the artists that I was uh, super excited about is Babes Wodumo, uh-huh. and her song "Wololo," which is like the song that she's best known for, was it actually made it into the the score of the film? Right. The scene where like the camera's swooping down into the yeah, vibranium yeah, yeah. mountain, and then it goes into Shuri's lab. Yeah. You know when she's showing off all of her new gadgets. That, to that's T'Challa. a that, that that's a that's a, a motif that keeps returning in the movie. Yeah. 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 But but that that song that's Babes Wodumo's song Wololo. Yeah. yeah. But on the Black Panther soundtrack, Babes Wodumo is on one song, and she sings a hook. That's it. Oh. You know, and there's nobody else. So it's like, 
I really wish that uh, Kendrick would have had the foresight to to reach out to artists in continental Africa. Right. And but there's also like artists in Germany. There's artists in the UK and so forth. Yeah, that's what I mean. I thought that yeah. like I mean I I, mean, I, I listen to the soundtrack. I mean, yeah. there's a few tracks I like. I didn't love the whole soundtrack, but I, I, I mean, I know that there was a certain outreach effort to capture the black diaspora. I didn't know. I didn't go into specific was, names. Yeah, and I don't see think that it was. No... I don't think it was really deep enough. I think they, yeah. they, they definitely could. They could have like put more Afro beats on there, for right. example. But the score, the score was good. Yeah, yeah. like the, I mean, because I mean, the the, the, the tracks and like the, the soundtrack in the movie is just used in terms of like you know uh, just a set of scenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But then the score is always you know you got the the tribal drums, you got the. The chanting, and then you got uh, what, and then you got a hip hop baseline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whenever, no, whenever, no, I like that a lot. Whenever uh, what's his name comes in, Killmonger. I was just gonna say that when when Killmonger takes over the throne, you you hear that the 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 score flip from like from uh, like Wakandan music yeah. to like trap music. Exactly. And I thought that was so dope. Like that scene where he's walking into the throne room mm -hmm. and the camera's upside down yeah. and then it rotates 180 degrees. Which so is we should say. I mean, I think I feel like that's like a, a nod to Dark Knight. Yeah, you know, like oh my gosh, Joker. I didn't even think about yeah, that. Yeah, that's so crazy. Like... And the thing is, too, I, I, I always also think about myself that Killmonger is probably the best villain. Mm -hmm. Not even just for like a superhero movie, but I think the best villain in any movie since The Joker and The Dark Knight. Yeah, I think uh, even Michael B. Jordan has said that. Like, he, he's, he's compared his character to, he's like aspiring towards what The Joker okay. did. I think, and, he, I think he definitely hit that mark. Well, I mean, let's talk about Killmonger, right? Okay, man, have you read what I wrote about the movie? Like, uh, the, the feature on yeah, like, yeah, kind of The Disconnect, right? Yeah. So I don't know if you agree with, disagree with me or agree with me, with, and that's fine right but um i mean i guess my whole thing going into the movie was that this is great seeing wakanda is really aspirational and like and again like, it's a beautiful sight but i think um i mean maybe when i've always imagined a black superhero movie or like the ideal one i imagine someone coming up from the same places that we came up from mm -hmm. kind of deal and then becoming a black superhero and to me killmonger was that he's a guy that comes from that place and rises up but then he becomes the villain and I thought yeah. that was an interesting way that this movie bridges that gap, that well, disconnect between this. This is going to blow your mind. Go ahead. Okay, so and I, I caught this, and I, I didn't uh, write it in the Globe and Mail um, essay that I did because yeah. I didn't want to spoil things for people. But the you know at the very beginning of the film, it starts off with a child asking his father to tell him a story. Yeah, that was the story of us. I think he says, or yeah, yeah, that was Killmonger. That was Ndjaka. Really, his, that was him asking his father Njobu to tell him a story, and Njobu was telling him about Wakanda. How how do you find that out? I when I watched it the second, I I thought it was for the first time. Yeah, I thought it. I mean, so because like, I wrote my article saying one, this is this is T'Challa's roots, and then the Oakland sequence is Killmonger. Well, because at the end of the movie, mm -hmm. um, at the end, it was at, it was after the credits rolled, and then that character with Bucky waking up inside the hut. Yeah, and then he he gets out, and then uh, Shuri is saying to him that they got more work to do, and so on. I was thinking, like, we didn't find out who that child was yeah. that was being told the story. Because it's, it's obviously not T'Challa's child. He doesn't have children. So no, like, but it, I thought it was T'Challa asking his dad, T'Jaka, no. about the story. Why would he be asking his father to tell him a story about... About Wakanda. He knows about, he knows about Wakanda. No, but he's a child at the time. Ah, it's a child voice, right? You know, that's what I assume. This is this is T'Challa as a child, and yeah. then the Oakland sequence is no, uh, Killmonger. But, but that was that was Sterling K. Brown's voice. Oh. Like I might, I could be wrong, but yeah. I'm like 99 positive that was Sterling K. Either Brown's way, voice. Either way, I mean, it's still more which adds like powerful, a yeah. another layer of complexity because yeah. that you're right. This could have been a superhero origin story. Yeah, like this could have been. Um, in, in Killmonger story could have been well a he would have been Killmonger he would have been, been, been yeah Ndjaka right yeah. Ndjadaka that would have been his story but you know because of the the turn that his life took and because his you know his father was killed and he found his body 
Um, he ended up growing up in Oakland, mm. you know, had to go into the U.S. Army, um, went to MIT also, but, you know, the, what really defined his character was, like, the amount of, sl- like, the slaughtering rampage he went on mm. with the full blessing of the United States government. Like, yeah. that was, that's what really put him on the path that he was on. So, I think that sort of added another layer to it. Like, what could this child have turned out like mm. if his father had had done the job the way that he was supposed to do it? Or, you know, when when... Uh, his father was found out by his brother T'Chaka that he ends up going back to Wakanda to face trial. And yeah. the child comes back with him. Or even after his father was killed, that his uncle simply takes him back to Wakanda with him. Yeah. Like, there were so many there were so many points in the movie where his life could have turned out just fine. Yeah. yeah. But the adults and the world around him failed him. Yeah. You know, so that that like and when I saw it the second time around, I was like, man, that's like that's a story in and of itself. Yeah. Because that's an allegory of the of the black communities like literally around the world yeah. and the ways that, you know, uh, society is shaped to destroy our families. Like it, it's, it's set up in such a way that us reaching adulthood intact mm-hmm. psychologically and physically, like society sort of stacks the odds against that happening, Yeah, you know, and then there's also issues within our own communities where we're, whether it's, you know, people taking advantage of each other, uh, through the church, uh, people taking their anger and their frustrations and, and all, all the shit out of each other in relationships, whether it's the household, whether it's addictions, like there are so many ways that your life can be fucked up as a black individual. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I, I think that that's really what added the texture that needed to be there for, for Killmonger's character. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. And th- this is why the only character I truly empathized with was Killmonger. And maybe because, he, you know, he comes from North America and he has all the cultural touchstones that we have. And because his anger just felt so deeply, you know, and the anger and the trauma, I felt it, right? And I love that. And that's where, like, you know, it's like, because to me, Wakanda, Black Panther, this is a superhero that's not that different. Well, that was from... something else, too. Like, the, the scars that he put on his body. Right, yeah. You know, I don't know how much... Because you, you see, like, at several points in the movie, it's like... He knows about his 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 home country of Wakanda. Yeah. But he doesn't know enough about it. Yeah, yeah. He just has like these American conceptions about what Wakanda would be like. Right, right. And that's the same for a lot of Americans who have a conception of what Africa is like, but they don't really put in the work to understand the cultures that they come from. They yeah. just sort of like pick from here, pick from here, pick from here, pick from here, and then pull that together into a belief system that basically mythologizes Africa. Yeah, yeah. We, call, we call them hoteps uh-huh. in the black community, right? And and the way that Killmonger speaks, like he's very obviously a hotep. Yeah. Uh, this is from the the this is Marrow show. Said uh, that I in don't re- know that show. Okay, so it's it's another you know it's a it's a pretty cool podcast and they've got a show on Viceland. Mm. Uh, but one of the hosts, Jesus, said you know in real life. Y'all be sick and tired of Killmonger spamming your timeline with, <laughs> with links about how lettuce is man-made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and I said that uh, 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 the museum keeper at the beginning of the movie, yeah. or, uh, the first thing that we see Killmonger, you know, the, the museum keeper wasn't actually poisoned. No, uh, Killmonger slipped essential oils into her coffee. <laughs> he was decalcifying her pineal gland. Yeah. <laughs> <That's amazing. laughs> well, so, but the thing is, like, he, the way that he... Scars, scars his, yeah. yeah, he scars his body, for example, you know, to represent a kill. And his body is, com- like, completely covered in them. Like, he has no room in his torso for more of them. Mm. But there's actually a tribe um, in Ethiopia called the Dasara tribe. They, they, they live in the Omo Valley, and they also do this. I mean, several tribes across the African continent do this. Several yeah. tribes in South America do this. Yeah. But this one was, I think, closest to the, the uh, Dasara tribe where, like, they, they um, you know, put uh, blades underneath their skin. Yeah. And then they rub... Um, like oils that are going to irritate the skin uh, so that when the skin heals it raises up into bumps right, right and right. that's like the scar the scarification that they do is actually like it's it's, it's a mark of beauty right but 
he takes that and he turn, he turn, he twists it into something completely awful. Right, right, right. Yeah. So and then he and then he goes back to his country and rips off his shirt, you know, about to fight the Chala. And this is a mark of pride for him. And you can see that everybody around him, when they look at his body, they're they're like horrified. Like, what kind of a human being are you yeah. to show like how, like what happened to you in your life that brought you to to this point? Yeah. And you can you can just sort of see that that mix of like fear and anger, but also pity in their faces. And yeah. I think that's that's what makes him such a multi-layered character. Yeah, he's an amazing character. Um, and you know what I do love is that he really is set up as an alternative. I mean, so uh, an alternative to T'Challa. To to yeah. And if you see, like, I mean, so we're I guess we're still not sure who the child is in that opening sequence, right? Like the, the in terms of the two pro. I'm ninety nine percent sure that yeah. it's it's. But I mean, let's let's just assume for a second yeah. that okay. it's it's right because if you, if if you t there's always this twinning that's going on in the movie. So the in the prologues you have the two prologues. You have the animated sequence for Wakanda, which is it's kind of fitting that it's animated because you know it's this idealization. Right. Um, and then you have Oakland, right? So we'll, let's if we assume that that's T'Challa, the child that's asking this for the story of time or of us. Um, then you go to uh, the sequences where you have uh, T'Challa getting his the, the throne sequence, so big, right? Like uh, where where he's crowned the king. That whole ceremony, that is preceded by the museum sequence where the where what's his name Killmonger is helping to steal an artifact of Wakanda to help him get into Wakanda. Yeah. You know, so there's a great little like uh, pairing up there of how these two are accessing their their you know the throne to Wakanda. Um, and then, you know, you have, uh, I mean, I think that kind of twinning happens throughout the movie where they're constantly just like set up as like this guy could have been the yeah. king of Wakanda and we get to that sequence. And I mean, I don't know how that made you feel emotionally because especially like the scene that really hit me, the really hurt or like really got me emotional was that dream sequence where he gets the powers, yeah. you know, like where, where they, Killmonger gets his powers, where Killmonger gets his powers, where they, 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 he, they take him to the ancestral plane mm -hmm. um, and he sees his dad and it's like that Wakandan glow is outside his Oakland apartment, right? right. And it's that, it's these, but the, that the, also the, means something. What's like that? that meant a lot because you, because when T'Challa had his dream sequence and mm -hmm. he, he visited the plane of the ancestors and he saw his father, it was in a, like a Wakandan plane. Yeah. And there's a tree with a bunch of jaguars showing exactly. up in it. One of the jaguars jumps off of the tree and then turns into his father. Yeah. But would they be jaguars or panthers? Panthers. Very obviously they'll be panthers. Yeah. It's the same it's the same cat, yeah, right? Yeah. It's a jaguar in South America, it's a panther, whatever. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's the same kind of cat, really. Oh, yeah. Um the panther is actually technically just a, a jaguar with black fur. Oh, uh, okay. But anyway, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. neither here nor there. So anyway, uh um but when Killmonger visits the ancestral plane, he doesn't go to Wakanda. He goes to Oakland. But the Wakandan sky is outside of that Oakland apartment. Right. And think about what that means, though. Think, yeah. Think about what it means that, like, T'Challa is on this, like, wide open plane. Yeah. Right? Like, the, it's basically, like, the uh, the world, as far as he can see, is what belongs to him in that plane. Yeah. But all that Killmonger has is just that, that yeah. apartment in Oakland. Yeah. That's, that is basically, like, a story of America, where it has shrink, shrunk the world so much that all he can see... Is that that apartment where he found his father's dead body? Yeah, like that's all that's around him. You know, and you see like the 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 Black Tower posters on the walls. He uh, pulls a panel off the wall and he finds his father's secret diary and everything else. Yeah. And he finds the uh, his father's ring, like the royal ring, and yeah. like he he basically has had to like find himself and find his identity through all of this emotional scar tissue. And then when he actually confronts his father, you know, his father asks him, "No tears for me." And Killmonger reverts basically to his his child self, mm -hmm. and he says, "No, you know, like people die here around here all the time." Yeah. And it's not until his father says, "Well, look what I've done," and says to him that I should have taken you back to Wakanda, 
that Killmonger reverts to an adult and then he sheds a tear. Probably the first time that he ever shed a tear for his father's death and for what his life turned out like. Yeah. But then the moment that he comes out of that reverie, he wakes up and he doesn't, like, there's nothing he takes away from that conversation because he's still angry about what happened to his father. His yeah. anger ha is more important to him, like, his hurt is more important to him than coming to peace with his, with his own father. Well, there is a last line he says to his father in that dream before he wakes up. He mm -hmm. says that maybe it's Wakanda that is lost. Because his father says they're probably not going to accept you. They think they're going to consider you a lost child. It's like maybe it's your country that's lost. And right. He, so I mean, I think that leads like that. He wakes up and with his up and with his newfound strength. Yeah. From the uh, the arch shaped with his newfound strength, the first physical act he under he, he undertakes is to strangle a black woman elder. Yeah. Like, literally lift her up into the air by her neck. Yeah. Uh, for for daring to cross him. So it's like, you can see how much, like you you can call you know Killmonger a sympathetic villain. I. Like, people have even said that, you know, he, you know, was the the revolutionary and then they dangled revolutionary um, uh, narratives in front of us and then took that away to respect to replace it with respect, respectability politics. Mm. I can kind of understand that, but Killmonger is not a revolutionary, not, yeah, no. not at least in my opinion. No. Because the the Black Panther Party was at, was also taken down. It wasn't just taken down by COINTELPRO. It wasn't just taken down by targeted assassinations. It wasn't taken uh, down by political exile. It was taken down by the violence of black men towards black women. Mm. And in Elaine Brown's book, and I wrote about this uh, for a publication called ByBlacks.com, uh, Elaine Brown, who was for three years the leader of the Black Panthers, said she had to leave the movement. She had to leave because basically women were irrelevant in the movement. Mm. And the moment she knew she had to go was when um, one of the administrators for, uh, for Black Panthers school in, or the Black Panthers School in Oakland, you know, this administrator, uh, her name was Regina Davis, you know, she, like, organized school trips. She oversaw the menus. She basically, like, was the backbone that ran the school. Mm. And because uh, Regina Davis reprimanded a black man who was a member of the party, whatever the argument was about, I don't know. She doesn't say in the book. But she reprimanded one of the, the Black Panther men. And they complained to Huey P. Newton, mm. who had returned from exile in Cuba. And Huey ordered those men to go and beat that woman. Like, he ordered... A bunch of Black Panthers to yeah. beat Regina Davis. They broke her jaw. That's and when yeah. when when Elaine Brown complained to him, like she calls him up, she's like, "Did you know about this?" And he's like, "Well, what do you want me to do? Uh -huh. You know, I had to give them something." That was actually what took the party down. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, amazing. Like, I mean, I just I did not know. That yeah, story. it's you yeah. know, that's a that's a thing a lot of people don't know is what actually took down like one of the most revolutionary black movement that ever existed in North America. Mm. It was it was because men could not deal with their own need to dominate women through violence. And that's the same thing that happens to Killmonger, is mm -hmm. that he basically comes into Wakanda and he tries to dominate it through violence rather well, than... Like, you can make the case for you know, armed revolution, and I, I think that that's a noble goal, regardless of, you know, people can talk about violence all the live long day. Yeah. I personally think that the violence that's been enacted on us for the last 400 years deserves an armed response, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. He doesn't try to have a conversation with people about it. He tries to, to dominate his own people through violence. He almost kills... The smartest human being on the planet, who's right. a sixteen-year-old black girl, yeah, why? Yeah. Because she she dared to stand up and oppose him. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, well, I mean, I mean, we should like he also has more of a streak of violence towards women throughout the movie because he kills his own girlfriend. Oh yeah, yeah. And then uh, and he I also felt, kills I felt, one of oh, the they, they yeah. did Nightshade dirty, man. Like <laughs> night in the comic book. Night, oh yeah, yeah. Nightshade is like a genius. She's like uh, she's a scientist. Yeah. She actually conducts some pretty like horrific experiments in human beings, but you know mm -hmm. she's. She's like a diabolical genius. Mm -hmm. And in the movie, she's basically just a dime piece. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And because she gets in his way, she gets captured by Claw. 
you know, he, he shoots her in the chest and kills her. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, but yeah, he does, and he kills the, uh, the museum keeper. And he all, kills... All uh, those I said, I think he was decalcifying her pineal gland. He's he trying to get <laughs> yeah. her third eye woke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, but... Um, and, and who else did he, he kill? He kills one of the Dora... How do I the, say the it? Dora Malaji. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like he kills during, one of them. Yeah, like, during that final fight scene, you know, he, he, he grabs one of the Dora Malaji from behind, puts yeah. a, a, a sword to her throat, yeah. and just cuts her throat without even hesitating. And he's gleeful about it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just... I, I see him as a figure that I might be able to empathize with, but mm. I neither sympathize and I not don't think... Not follow. You wouldn't follow his Absolutely path because, not. Yeah, and obviously. I think that talking about him, like, you know, this was an actual revolutionary character and they took it away, like, this is, like, the conversation that's been happening on mm-hmm. social media. I think that that's really short-sighted because then... But it's also indicative of a lot of problems that exist in black communities. It's like, you understand and you follow his ideas so closely that you're willing to overlook all the horrific things that he does, he does to black women mm-hmm. to get there. I just, I can't, I can't rock with that. Yeah. But I mean, a, more power to the movie for actually like dealing with all of those issues, right? And like, It's an kind action of movie. An I action know. movie dealt with all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. That's the, that's a the crazy Marvel movie. Because remember, Marvel movies, when they do deal with real shit, mm-hmm. they like to deal with it in like abstracts, right? Like, oh, yeah. like, you know, um, like the, this war-torn country called Segovia, mm-hmm. you know? And like when Iron Man, the first Iron Man movie, when he goes off in the Middle East, we don't know where he's Yeah, he's dealing know? with like drone warfare, yeah. dealing with the security state. Yeah. You know, dealing with uh, with overseas war, like but no specific history is ever called right. in. And yeah. here we get not just Oakland, we also get him specifically saying, "I killed in Afghanistan, I've killed in Iraq." Yeah, like you know, killed all my specific... brothers and sisters on this continent. Exactly, and I was killing just to get to you. Yeah, yeah, they 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 like hit the nail on the head as far as like touching on the is you know everything from colonization to ancestor kidnap to bystander syndrome. Like they cover so many topics mm-hmm. in this movie that Hollywood has failed to do for decades before that and and presents to us movies like Crash. Right. Which I fucking hated. I can't believe you brought that one up. I remember, I, oh my gosh, I remember I watched that movie and I hated it so much in, and I think I began to hate it more after I saw it. Yeah. I, I hated it during, during the time that I saw it. But it was everything that came after that because every fucking white person in my life was like, man, have you seen the movie Crash? Yeah, oh, yeah, Crash yeah. is so good. Well, hold on. To be fair, though, a lot of the black... I, I went to UFC Scarborough, and a lot yeah. of the black people there loved that movie, too. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. and uh, people you would assume... Let me tell you. It's people, okay. They probably, people they probably who were, like, yeah. woke, so to speak, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. who were, like... I remember getting in the Toronto Star for calling out institutionalized racism. Mm-hmm. Men like that, uh, black men like that, loved Crash and tried to argue with me that it is actually good and in all the issues of Crash... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'd love to know what they think now. Yeah, Crash, I think, was like one of the worst things ever to come out of Hollywood because yeah. it was, it's it's like take and and you know what else does that? Um, this thing that I hate, which is uh, trying to get you to sympathize with racists mm. and showing you well they could have been right. Yeah, but deep down they're human. They're good human beings. Maybe, Maybe they, they do some awful shit, but a they're probably partially right, and b they're good people deep down. Three bull- billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Yeah. Oh my god, I, I hated that. Can I can I be yeah, honest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta yeah. be honest. Like when I first watched it, I knew something was off, but I thought, oh, maybe it's just because it's kind of really going for it that it didn't really like, it didn't really handle the issues as delicately. But I thought I actually did enjoy it when I first saw it. Yeah. And it was again after hearing other voices speaking about it, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, that really is shit. Like that really oh, does suck because uh, that really does tear down everything you are supposedly trying to do in terms of its ornament. Like the I saw, I saw the movie without really any. Like I, I went into it not knowing what it was. Right, right. I just went and saw the movie. Like yeah. I didn't know what it was really about. I just heard, oh, it's, okay, so it's, it's the movie, because it, I, I I knew about you know that filming like 
I liked in Bruges, for example. Yeah. Right? So um, I, I, I like that. I liked. Um, I forget the name of the director. Um, Martin Mad- Madonna. I don't know how to say it. Okay, but yeah, but I, but I like the style right. of film, so I was like, all right, I'll go watch this, right? Yeah. And then I'm, I'm sitting here watching it, I'm like, this is absolutely fucked up. <laughs> like, they, they just deal with this cop who apparently has, like, you know, tortured black people and has, like, a, a vicious racist, racist streak, lets these slurs fall off his tongue, and the thing is, like, they're trying to get us to sympathize with this guy, like, he's a good guy deep down, yeah. and they keep saying that in the movie, oh, you're a good guy deep down. I hated it. I, I hated that movie for the same reason that I hated Crash. Mm-hmm. And it's like every time that Hollywood tries to bring up this topic, institutionalized racism, colonialism, i.e. Blood Diamond, mm-hmm. um, Africa itself, as a, as, as not just as a country or, um, and I know Africa is a continent, but I'm talking about the way that Hollywood views Africa as a country, yeah. but as a, a problem to be solved, right, including right. the people. And it can only be solved at the hands of a white savior. Yeah, yeah. You know, th- like... They've never gotten it right up until now, I don't no, think. they couldn't find a way to empathize with, a, with an actual black character and stuff, so they need to reduce you to either victim or aggressor and such. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, let me... I just want to... like, Because I don't want to dwell on Three Billboards too long, yeah, yeah. but I do want to say, like, so my initial reaction to Three Billboards was, I thought it was about white ignorance, you know? Like, I mean, it's because, you know, you do have this woman who's railing against the cops, and I thought it was about the fact that look at what she can get away with while her friend's getting, you know, arrested, busted for weed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought that was what he was trying to do. And again, but again, uh, it doesn't justify how it does it, you know, and yeah. which is what I realized, you know, after thinking about it upon reflection outside of that festival thing. But in terms of now Crash, though, the reaction to Crash, like the, the way we were, because like, when I first saw Crash, I was just like, it's kind of whack or whatever. Yeah. I'm sure it hit some emotional. At that time, though, we didn't really have a lot of thoughtful takes on racism. If you look back to before 2005, I mean, we're getting it right now with Get Out and with Moonlight. I mean, Moonlight's not even really dealing with racism. It's really dealing with like intra-community experiences. Yeah. Yeah. But but we didn't have that kind of thoughtful, empathetic, uh, like approaches to black narratives. No, at the time of crash. No, because black characters don't get to lead their own movies. Mm -hmm. You know, and when and when we do lead movies, um, I forget the name of this author who talks about. Um, you know, the, the narratives that, that black people have fit into, you know, and, uh, in, let's say like the post-Civil War period Hmm. or the reconstruction period going forward, um, black people occupied the position of like aggressors, rapists, demons, primates, like Hmm. we represented everything that was evil and also represented the opposite of whiteness. Hmm. But then we go from that to being the way that we're represented in film, literature, etc., judges and doctors and lawyers and presidents and so on so we swing from like one end of the spectrum all the way to the other Mm. where every black person who doesn't end up becoming the exception is now part of the problem right right. right? so it's and 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 this is something that i grew up with like i remember the first time that i met um lincoln alexander as Mm. a child uh, who was the uh, the first elected black member of parliament in canada okay i did not um when, when i met him as a child i remember like he you know he reached down he shook my hand and basically, like, told me that, you know, I, I need to, um, uh, you know, stay, like, pay attention in school and uh, do well because I, I need to make my mother proud. But this is a thing that's constantly reinforced into our heads is that we need, and what's behind that really is you need to not be a stereotype of what white people think you are. Mm. So whether we're at one end of the spectrum or the other, we exist as a product of the white imagination. Mm-hmm. You need to either... Um, not be the stereotype or you are going to be the stereotype but everything that you are is defined by what, what what people think of you and then you leave out everything within the middle of that spectrum like 
yeah, we're going to have our artists, we're going to have our creatives, we're going to have our slackers. Like we, like, we don't get to experience the full range of human beingness mm-hmm. because we're stuck in that shell. And I think Hollywood exemplifies that because they don't have... It's, it's not even just a matter of like having enough representation for black people. It's not enough to just put them in front of the camera and have them play a character. Uh, you can play a character like you know, Bagger Vance or play a character like uh, Michael Clark Duncan's character in The Green Mile. Mm-hmm. And even though like the white characters in their films respect them, probably even love them, what do they represent for us? So, yeah. what does that mean? Like, so I, I'm not a full human being unless I can like possess magic powers or yeah. help a white character. Yeah. yeah. You know? And that's... Well, exist in, within, like you said, within yeah. their imagination or play that Gunga Din kind of role. Of, exactly. Yeah. And, and that's and that's why I'm saying it's important for films like, say, A Wrinkle in Time to come out because now, like, a character like... And I forget the name. I've read A Wrinkle in Time when I was, like, seven years old. I haven't read it since. So yeah. I forget the name of the main character. But to see a black girl who simply exists as her own human being who's off on this, like, intergalactic adventure like, represents everything that's been missing from Hollywood because she's she doesn't exist within the confines <clears throat> of the white imagination. She's just a girl mm. who's off on an adventure. I'll put it this way, like, <clears throat> anytime that I ever saw a black kid in a film growing up, like, a, in, a, in a kids-related film, and there were very few, mm. like, it, it was basically only white kids that were allowed to have adventures. But they were there, like, to fill a role. Um, they were essentially a token. Like, they were just like a, I don't know, like an item on a keychain or something. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like the Stranger Things, by the way. Which you know, kind of, it's interesting that it recreates It does recreate the dynamic, that dynamic uh, a lot. I liked in the second season that they got into Lucas's family. Mm, I, I yeah. liked that. What I really didn't like was that they, they had, um, Lucas be bullied by, I forget the name of the new girl who mm-hmm. joins their group, but her older brother, who was the, the, what was his name? Uh, Dakery Montgomery? Oh. He was the he was he played Jason in the Power Rangers movie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, so they, they had him bully Lucas uh, for a good part of the series, but they never actually explain why. Like they say, you know, he would say to his little sister, like, I don't want you hanging out with him, but they never actually put like an exclamation mark on it. They never actually had him say, yeah. I don't want you hanging out with that nigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna like if you're gonna if you're feeling froggy jump if you're gonna go with it like go all the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I. Again, like I, I just I don't like when when black characters get slotted into roles and filmmakers are, are too cowardly to call the problem out. Right. I think the movie It did a better job of that, even though they they very much reduced uh, the I, and I don't remember this character's name either. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a a black youth in the in the movie. That works it. in the slaughterhouse. Yeah, he works yeah. in the slaughterhouse. You know his uh, his, uh, his parents were dead. You know. Uh, the, the the black community had experienced like tragedy because there was a uh, fire that took place in, inside this like I think it was like a juke joint mm. um, so but you know he, he existed sort of as a token but at the very least it was able to name exactly what the issue was with him and his community is that there was a bunch of racist white boys yeah. who were telling him that he wasn't welcome yeah. you know and uh, I, I think that being able to get away from all that involves putting a black girl front and center and just letting her have her own adventure. Mm-hmm. Whether you want to name racism or not, feel free, like, go ahead. I very much trust Ava DuVernay's judgment and the way to pull those conversations off, just like I would trust Ryan Coogler mm-hmm. to have the judgment to be able to pull off that conversation. I mean, he literally, like, his, his film debut was Fruitvale Station, which was introducing a very, very uncomfortable conversation about the murder of Oscar Davis. So, mm. like... Oscar Grant. So, Oscar Grant. Sorry, I was thinking... I got it mixed up with Jordan Davis right. a second ago. <laughs> yeah. This, the thing is, like, there's so many of them that yeah. it's, like, sometimes it's hard to, you know, keep everyone straight, which is kind of fucked up, but that's just the way it is. Like, yeah. it's almost like every five minutes there's somebody else. But, 
you know, uh, and Ava DuVernay uh, directed Selma. So, like, they, they're well-versed in having that conversation on race and to mm-hmm. be able to bring that lens to a children's film, I think, is so important right now. Yeah. You know, I because I, you mentioned Fruitvale Station. Uh, I mean, the one thing that really bothered me about Fruitvale Station, uh, don't get me wrong, I think it's a good film, but whatnot, but I, they, and we might wonder if they do this in Marvel, in the in Black Panther and whatnot, is it's the concession to uh, white tolerance, I guess you can call it, like, in terms of the story of Oscar Grant, why did we need that fake-ass story of him dumping the weed? Like, who in their right mind would do that? Like, you know, if you you want to give up the game, that's fine, but you would still sell off that big bag of weed to somebody, right? Yeah. You know, like, you're not gonna, you're not dumping it that in was the a water. Lot of, yeah, that was a lot of money that, the, oh my god. Yeah, like, I mean, if you're in that position, that's, I mean, that that was just a concession so that people would see, like, you know, really feel that this guy I, And I remember straight. thinking, and I mean, this is horrible to say, but I remember thinking when I watched it in the theater, I was like, man, nigga, I'll take that off your hands exactly. if you don't want it. <laughs> I mean, it's practically legalized anyway, yeah. you know, so like that sequence i mean i get it that it could cause him a lot of problems but you would still find a way yeah to not dump it in the water and make you get like what you can from that you know yeah, especially I, when he had a buyer and he just decided not to go not with to it s- yeah sell it. i know i i, I get it and it, but that's it, not, that's it, it not, does feel like a concession though it's not it? just a concession to whiteness though it's a concession to black respectability mm. like you'll find just as quickly as you'll find a white person who will wag their finger at you and say well you shouldn't participate in these kinds of activities because this is going to lead you down the wrong path you'll find a black elder who will say the exact same thing to you in the right. exact same tone of voice, right? Mm. So, you know, I'm pretty sure that there was, like, a few, like, pastors in the audience and a few white-collar uh, black folks who, you know, maybe didn't grow up in those circumstances or did grow up in those circumstances and was able to escape who looked at that and their hearts grew three sizes when they saw him dump that weed. Right, right, So, yeah. I th- it, was, it was a concession to a certain type of respectability. I don't know that it, I really felt like it was towards white people because I have had that conversation with many black elders throughout my lifetime okay. I, I get that okay but i and i but you're right though there is often a concession and the most egregious example i can think of is 12 years 12 years of slave mm-hmm. um, which uh scene are we talking about uh so chuatel ledgerford's character uh, solomon vandy was um he's worked solomon Solomon, you, I love the the way you remix people's names. I, oh my god! <laughs> you're like you're totally remixing it. Solomon is it Northup or up north or something like? It's uh, is it it's Solomon? North, it's Northrop. 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 <laughs> okay. Where did I get Vandy from? I'm not sure where that came. From. Oh, oh, you know where that came from was uh, Blood Diamond. Oh, the so the character that um, that uh, oh my gosh. Jimon Hunsu, Hunsu? Jimon Hunsu, the, the character he played, his name was Solomon Vandy. Oh, uh, okay. okay so <laughs> so you see how this all just, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it all just blends together. I'm getting old, man. It happens to me too, man, trust me. Neurons aren't out firing like they used to. <laughs> but, but yeah, so yeah, the, the character Solomon Northrop, he's, he's um, when he's building that house, you remember that scene where he meets Brad Pitt? Yeah. And he's, he's building the house, and then, so Brad Pitt is basically just like mouthing off to Solomon's, you know, master. Um... And he, he's like the, the white savior character in the film. He just sort of like pop, like sprouts up out of the ground like a dwarf or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, he's just like this this one guy who actually gets it because he's from Canada. Right. And, he, and he, he's the one that takes the message north yeah. uh, to, to Solomon's family and to, to people who can actually get him freed. Mm. You know, and I thought, man, that's, that's, that is such shit. That's such a cop-out. But isn't that what really happened? Well, then, but here's the thing. You you introduce this character out of nowhere, but you mm. also give white people something to latch onto. Right. You have wall-to-wall awfulness and cowardice um, from white people th- like throughout the entirety of the film. Yeah. And then you have this one character for everyone to be like, oh, I would be just like him. 
Yeah. No, like don't let people off that easy. Like, I'm but then sure. how do you complete a story? Because it's twelve years a slave. I mean, I get, I get exactly yeah. what you're saying. I'm pretty, that... I'm pretty sure the guy was not that lippy. To mm. you know, to to the 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 people whose houses he's working on. I'm pretty right, sure he right. was not that lippy to them. About well, he could have been a little more reluctant about passing off. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, like yeah. just like the um, you know, the uh, the overseer who he was trying to get to pass the message, and the guy sold him out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the the white dude, like, it's not. There's not a. Contra- like you have to understand the the way that the the, the South had a, a grip on slavery. It wasn't just a thing that people did because they they liked to do it. I'm pretty sure a lot of them did enjoy it, but it was an econ- it was an economic powerhouse. Yeah, everybody was invested. Yeah. So to try and get like somebody to you know go, it's like getting like a like a you know an, an anti oil activist. You know, to go work on a rig in Alberta yeah, yeah, and have yeah. all these like opinions, which they'll like say to like to shop to to, to foreman or whoever, like they're just gonna like spout off their opinions to whoever about yeah. how awful oil is. I get I, that. I, I don't. Get I don't that. see it. Like, I don't see it happen. <laughs> well, I mean, to defend Twelve Years a Slave for a second, because I mean, I do. I did like the Benedict Cumberbatch character where you feel like he's this good white man that's helping him. But in the end, when his, the economics like yeah, yeah, loosen yeah. around, he's like, no, nope, man, I can't really help you. Sorry, man, I can't do it yeah. for you, bro. <laughs> like, he, he lets the guy hang in his, his yard for an entire day. Like, yeah, let's, yeah. let's him hang from a tree with just his toes barely touching the ground. And if his feet slip, like he's going to strangle. Yeah. He let him sit out there in the yard like that because he's such a fucking coward mm. who tries to convince himself that he's a good person yeah. that he can't even cut him down from that tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then ends up selling him to the most brutal slave master that, you know, that anybody knows in the area. Yeah. So 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 that's in defense of 12 years a slave. It didn't I'm really not saying no, I'm not saying that yeah. 12 years a slave is by any means a bad movie. But no, I get what you mean but about But what I like, yeah, what I really don't like is just like the 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 character that pops up, a white character that pops up in any of these movies. Um, that white people can sort of attach themselves to and be like, I would be like that. It's almost like uh, the character that um, Jennifer Connelly played in uh, Blood Diamond. You know, I she's like this. Remember this, her in Blood Diamond? Yeah, she was like this, this piece. She was uh, Leo DiCaprio. You know how like, far removed that movie is from my mind. <laughs> you know, like, I saw it back when it came out, and I was yeah. just like, I just remember Leo like having a South African accent and shooting off a machine gun. And just, oh, you like, know what ticked me off about that too? Um, and this is something I'm, I'm probably gonna write about as well, which is like. Hollywood nods to blackness without really understanding the context. Mm. So there's a scene where he's uh, talking to Jennifer Connelly's character, yeah. who's basically this like this hippie liberal who has all these like highfalutin ideas about what's making Africa such a bad place. Uh-huh. Colonialism, she calls it out like immediately, you know. And he says, uh, Leo DiCaprio says to her, "You know, in America it's bling bling, but out here it's bling bang, huh?" But that movie took place. I think it was like the early '90s. Right. It was well, somewhere between like the early to the mid '90s yeah. that that film took place. the The term bling bling didn't. Was it? it wasn't in the vocabulary yet. It was '99, right? When bling bling showed up. The, right. The song. The 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 song. The Hot song. Yeah. That that term hadn't even shown up yet. Yeah. yeah. But you know, and I remember it, that actually kicked me out of the movie. I was like, these people don't know what the fuck they're talking about, <laughs> and I couldn't enjoy the rest of the movie because of that one line. Well, I couldn't enjoy. There's so many reasons not to enjoy the fucking movie. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, give me a break. Like, down yeah. the path of just not enjoying yeah. that movie. Yeah. But you know, like, but in terms of these like kind of white characters, then let's bring it back to Black Panther. I mean, because a lot of people are wondering why is there this like why are we giving this like nice white? I mean, I'm seeing it. I'm sorry, I'm t- referring to the Twitterverse here. But I'm seeing a lot of discussion about having this CIA agent show up and be kind of this 
I guess, white, nice CIA. Like, you know, they, they feel like it is exactly that kind of character, a concession for white audiences or something. Do you think that's that? Because, like, yeah, I mean... I don't know about that. Because we have that scene that you, we were talking about earlier. with the Yeah, movie. and I think if, if, you know, I think some people just look at, like, the, the surface of it and be like, oh, well, he was a white guy and he's with the CIA and he's a good yeah. guy and they brought him back to Africa and they would heal him, but they didn't bring... Uh, but T'Chaka did not bring Njadaka back to, to Wakanda. So what are they really trying to say? Like, white people's lives are more valuable? It's like, man, no. Like, mm. no, that's not what that was saying at all. And on top of that, like, his, like, his character was actually like your typical white person that like thinks that they know black people yeah, yeah. gets very over familiar with black people yeah but then once he's actually like immersed in the culture he's like man i'm really out of my depth here mm-hmm. right yeah he's like you know like your white friend that you bring to church one day or something like that you know or you bring to like a, a bashment party and yeah, like, yeah. Oh my gosh i'm surrounded by all these people <laughs> suddenly so uncomfortable he's the he's the white friend at work you know that uh, leans over and says to you like man i was at a party this weekend and it was all black people, and I was so uncomfortable. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And I tried the spices. I tried the hot sauce. But we're at work. Take a look around. How do you think I feel? You yeah, know? yeah, so, yeah. But I think, you know, that there was also a lot of subtext with that character, the way that he spoke out of turn, and, he, and M'Baku basically told him to shut the fuck up. Yeah. You know, um, I think the one thing I would remove from him is the 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 flight, the the fact that he gets to shoot down the armored ships. Like that's something that a takes away from the main narrative anyway. Yeah, does you don't need it. It wasn't very exciting, and it just gives him an opportunity to kind of be heroic in this story. Uh, Maybe I mean again, it's uh, such a. It, you had so, to give him something to do. <laughs> like, the thing is, and I, I, well, it's either that or you have him locked up in a room and you forget about his character. Yeah, which is fine. <laughs> it happens to black people all the time. <laughs> True, you know why not? Uh, or you have him in that uh, that climactic fight, um, fighting against uh, Wakabi's tribe. I don't mm. think I'd be okay with that either. No, no, no. Yeah. Having him like you know fight. I like the locked up in the room though. <laughs> but yeah, no. But I get yeah, what you're you saying. Know, you're right. You're right. I, like he could have just been like <laughs> like fixing yeah, some no. communication. The, all the action is over, and then they unlock the door, and he's like, "What happened?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would have been so much so yeah. much better. Okay, fair enough. I'll yeah. give you that. Uh, but no, but I mean, all in all, I think they did a pretty fantastic... I mean, if I had any problems with Black Panther, it's really just the same problems I have with every fucking superhero movie is I didn't give a shit about all the fighting. Like, you know, the action in the end. Like, even when the rhinos showed up and stuff. I think... Oh my gosh, no. I, I like that part You like the rhinos? I like, I like the rhinos a lot. I liked, I liked it because at the very end... It's like, how do you go back to being his friend after that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, 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 well, we don't know be, if they're going to be friends. They can't be boys now. No, no, yeah. No. Hey, hey, dog, sorry about, sorry about calling all the rhinos on you. Sorry, yeah. that's my bad. Yeah, yeah, no. And the thing is, oh my gosh, on social media, they're clowning Wakabi so much. Like, just talking about what kind of nigga he is. <laughs> I said, I said, Wakabi the type to uh, delete the Final Fantasy VII save block off your memory card. Now, see, to yeah. make room for Crash Bandicoot. I don't know, you don't know nothing about that. <laughs> video games. Anybody in your audience who knows about video games knows that this is the guy who, like, you know, you, you, you gotta stop playing Street Fighter to go to the bathroom. And you yeah. come back and you say, he actually, like, unpause the game and beat your character. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, I can, I can relate to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but. You're the kind of, like, to, 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 like, use up all the sugar in the house to make Kool-Aid. <laughs> and then, and then, and then leave, like, a, a finger's breadth of Kool-Aid left in the jug. <laughs> That's him. That's... <laughs> Um, well, all right. So I don't know if you, there's anything else you wanted to add to that. Architecture. Architecture. Okay. Yeah, those one, those like the uh, the architecture. What really kind of like um, made me sit up and take note mm-hmm. was that scene where um, so 
T'Challa and uh, Nakia. Nakia and Okoye are flying in that jet back to Wakanda. Mm. And then they fly through, like, the, the visual barrier. Yeah. Like, through the forest, and they actually, like, see, like, the central city of Wakanda. The skyline of Wakanda. Yeah. And you see, like, when they, they're flying in, they're swooping in through the buildings. And there's a building, like, you have to look on the left-hand side of the screen. Uh -huh. There's this building, and it has these, like, these poles jutting out of it. Okay. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's the Great Mosque of Janae. Like, they got the inspiration. Because, like, how often do you see a building with poles just simply, like, jutting out of it? I'd have to visualize it. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, but there's okay. these, these these large round poles, like, just coming out of the side of the building. Yeah. It's like, why would that be there? And I was like, there, that the inspiration for that building was mm -hmm. the Great Mosque of Janae, which is located in Mali. Uh -huh. At the time that it was built, Mali was actually one of, like, the richest empires in the world. Yeah. yeah. Like, the richest human being who ever lived was Mansa Musa. Uh -huh. And uh, the, the mosque... Uh, let me go to put this. So, people um, who have no concept of what Africa is will often talk about, you know, Africans um, living in, like, mud huts right. and, and, and making their homes out of grass and sticks, etc. Because that's all that they've ever been shown. You know, this mosque uh, was commented on by a French explorer who, who commented on, like, you know, pigeons who roosted inside the, uh, the ceilings and, and gave it a rude smell and people had to say their prayers outside, like... It was so like heavily looked down upon, but this the structure is centuries and centuries old, and it's made of mud, mm. and it has these poles. It looks like poles, but it's really scaffolding mm. sticking out of it at regular intervals. And the reason that it's there is so that as the mud starts to crumble away, like let's say after it rains and then it's like you know sunny again, so it, it dries and the the mud cracks. Yeah, it's so that the uh, the the people who are upkeeping this mosque can then replace the mud. Uh, so they climb onto that scaffolding and they're, they'll place the mud that's fallen away. And this uh, is how it's been able, been able to be maintained for so many years. Like, you don't see actually a single brick on the outside of it. Right. And having that be an inspiration for a building that was in, like, a brief shot. It was, like, blink and you'll miss it. Right. So to have that in a brief shot of Wakanda, I think that was sort of, like, like that was a gimme. Like, that was fan service for people who are into African history and African culture. Right, right, right. But then you can see also how, like, the buildings inside of like in Wakanda are just, like, influenced by, like, multiple areas like you, it looked to me, almost like, like Lagos in a way. Mm. And then you know when they're um, walking through the, the market, market, yeah. And uh, you know, Charles talking to Nakia about you know she's saying to him like you know like how could I be queen or how could I like you know stay here when there's so much suffering happening out in the world? I feel like I have to do something. But as they're walking through this market, like it's not a, like it. It looks like an African open air market. Like yeah. I could I could see this in like, you know I could I could see it in, in like Accra or wherever. But it's not a shanty town, right, right? And that's all you ever get to see in films is is African cities as shanty towns. Yeah. You don't actually see what it looks like inside of Ethiopia. You don't see what it looks like in Nigeria. You don't see what it looks like in Ghana or Tanzania or elsewhere. Yeah. Or you know, South Africa. I think you do see to some extent, but only where white people are on the screen. Right. right, right. Um, and I, I thought that was that should take all the excuses away from Hollywood that they have for ever like for only ever portraying Africa in a light that depicts poverty and violence and corruption. And the way that you do that, they do this with, with Brazil by only over showing the favelas. Mm. They do it with Africa by only ever showing the shanty towns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing is like, each African city has its own like DNA. Right. Like it, it has its own feel, it has its own look. You know, um, my you know my fiance is half Nigerian and half Trini. Like, and she's I haven't been to Africa myself. I just spend a lot of time like looking at pictures, right? right, right. But it's like I don't ever get to see this represented. Like when she's gone and she she's she's uh, you know brought back the photos. She's like I don't ever see anything like this yeah. in Hollywood film. And I think with that brief shot, like that sweeping view of the central city of Wakanda, 
Like, you've taken all the excuses that, away from Hollywood that they've ever had to depict the continent of Africa in that light. Yeah. Yeah. That's... I don't even have, a, I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> like, I've never seen it. Well, I, I you know, I was going to ask, though. I mean, yeah. what I was going to say is because that, that mosque you were talking about, the structure and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I was initially going to say, but wait a second. If Wakanda was not colonized, then why is there a mosque? Right? It's, well, it's not, it's not a yeah. mosque. It's a building. So it's, yeah, yeah I guess a, in this situation, it's a building. It's a skyscraper. It's architecture, right? Yeah, it's a skyscraper. With mm. these poles like jutting out of it, and yeah, it's like, why would those poles like, be there? And it's like, they're because they're yeah. they use the mosque as an influence. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it's just it's. But the thing is, you know, um, they they haven't been colonized. But uh, Mbaku, when he challenges T'Challa for the throne, and T'Challa says, "I accept your challenge," Mbaku says, "Glory to Hanuman." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, haven't been, like, they haven't been colonized, but they, yeah. there are outside influences, right? Or and the uh, the panther god, um, that's the, the the panther god's name is Bast. Mm-hmm. You know, so like there's there's still influences from the outside. I mean, yeah. obviously before Wakanda became Wakanda, mm-hmm. you know, there were there were people who had contact with the outside world. Right, it's right. just that they had been colonized. Yeah. So there's there's still influences that they've taken from other from other countries and other civilizations. Um, the thing I'm not an anthropologist, so I can't give yeah, you all, yeah, the, yeah. all the answers. But I, I I am like pretty heavy into like mythology and so on. So you know, I see these names and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's really cool that that showed up. Yeah. But I think you know, sort of getting back to the architecture piece. Um, you can you can tell you can say so much in any sort of like um, like location shot you can tell you can say so much about a place about the people that live in it about the character um, of the world that you're creating just by showing the architecture yeah like you know in, in um, the dark Knight um, they said so much about Gotham City with these like sweeping views of, of Chicago. Yeah. You know, in, in Spider-Man, they like, they make a statement about New York just by showing him like zipping from building to building, right? Yeah. Like you're saying so much about the place in which the characters live and the people in it with those, uh, with those scenery shots and what you see in the African continent for any film that's ever, for any Hollywood film that's set there, you're saying so much about them by like tightening your focus to these like poor shanty towns mm-hmm. and these jungles, you know, run by like corrupt warlords. You're saying so much about them and not ever showing metropolitan life right. in the African continent, right? So, I think that that's, um, I think that that's. I really hope that what Black Panther accomplishes is pulling that rug out from under Hollywood's feet. To say, you know, when you when you when you, it's almost like the conversation we we're having earlier about uh, you know Killmonger's. Um, uh, vision in the ancestral plane yeah being inside that oakland apartment yeah like his world is incredibly small yeah. and what you're doing when you only show shanty towns and, and jungles and deserts and so forth is that you're you're making the world of an entire continent you're shrinking it down to just this this very narrow view it's almost like trying to like you know look at the majesty of the wakandan landscape through a pinhole you can't right. possibly capture it yeah yeah so, and i'm kind of nervous that we're not going to see anything like this again for a long time I am too, uh, which is why I really hope that there's a lot of dope black writers out. Oh my gosh, we haven't even talked about the clothing and fashion and so on. But yeah. I don't know if we have time for all that, but yeah. I just I hope that there's like black designers. I hope there's uh, there's black filmmakers, black screenwriters. You know, if they're not now, that they would want to be. Like mm-hmm. I just hope that so many people see a movie like this one and get inspired to create something of their own yeah. and tell those stories because we desperately need them. Like, you know, where is a uh, Lord of the Rings type of uh, fantasy set within 
like an African influenced continent. Mm-hmm. And Don't you know what that. the trolls are going to be like? Well, Lord of the Rings is in Middle Earth. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's a, Middle yeah. Earth seems to look a lot like uh, like medieval England. But, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really like it, yeah. it's actually nothing like medieval England, but that's ostensibly where like you know where where J.R.R. Tolkien pulled his influences. Yeah. But it's just, it's just like like we only ever see one. View. I'll put yeah, it to yeah. you this way. Yeah. Um, whenever, like, whenever I buy books about African history, I either have to, um, um, get recommendations from friends and order them directly from the publisher. Um, I've actually, you know, uh, been making more of an effort to go down to a different book list and get books from there as well. But, you know, it's, it's really hard to find books set within the African continent or about the African continent that aren't about starvation and poverty and corruption, etc., and I remember I went to Chapters over at uh, uh, Richmond and John, which is now like it's no longer cha- it's no longer Chapters. It's now like a Some Michaels, kind of, yeah, 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 J. Michael or whatever. But you know that used to be my favorite bookstore to go to because I worked just about a block away. Hmm. So between like after I would leave work, but before my uh, my gym classes, I would head over to that bookstore, like pick out a book <clears throat> and maybe buy it, right? Yeah. And I remember any time that I wanted to go find a book on African history, like the, they had this like this s- small African section. Like it was just basically like one section on one shelf. Right. This entire this entire like three story store. Yeah. And there was nothing in there about actual African history. It was all about post colonial contact, mm. and it wasn't about like the horrors of post colonial contact. It was it was books like you know first kill your parents. Mm. You know like it was just all about African dysfunction. Yeah, yeah, and you look at like the European and the medieval history or the Asian history like there's just so much information there but there's just nothing there for us and I think that that's the distilled essence of what it's been like in film is that if you look for African influence in film not only to like learn something I don't think you're really going to be able to learn much from film but yeah. to inspire other filmmakers to create something even greater it's just not there the influences haven't exist there's nothing to really like peg your experiences to to go off and create something else you know, sorry, I have to touch on this other thing that when you mentioned that, right? Um, I don't know if you read Armand White's review mm. of the Black Panther. Oh my gosh! No, you know, listen. Though, okay. Like, we, okay. I mean, of course, we know it's going to be a negative review because it's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's not White, like yeah. Armand White doesn't make some valid points. He always. I, I haven't read it, so I don't okay. Know. Okay. His valid point. The point that I think is worth paying attention to is that yes, we're kind of we're accepting this celebration of black culture even though it's be it's basically being used as a prop within the marvel narrative essentially i mean like he was basically saying like this is something that to appease us to then like still take up like you know the same marvel narrative that's been going around like i mean and and the reason i'm going to give you that you know like there's kind of a valid point there is this isn't this isn't you know, pure African cinema in the way that, say, Usman Sambeni might try to, like, kind of shake off all influences that come from Western myth. I'm not saying, I'm not yeah. agreeing with Armand here, yeah. but I think he's bringing up a certain point that is valid because we're still within the narrative framework of a Marvel movie, which is still part of, like, kind of the dominant narrative. <laughs> he's stroking it. You can't see me, but I'm making up, the, making the jerking off hand yeah. motion here. Go ahead, respond. Uh, oh my gosh. If you expected that a Marvel movie made within the Disney template was mm. going to be able to do that, <laughs> then what the fuck are you writing film reviews for? Yeah. That's, this okay, you got to take this for what it is. I, I keep expressing amazement that they were able to touch on all of these issues and handle it, I think, expertly mm. within a Marvel action film. Mm-hmm. This is not supposed to be 
like the film that redeems the African continent. Right. This is a film to be able to take your kids to and enjoy. Yeah. yeah. I think as long as you accomplish that goal, then you succeeded as yeah. a filmmaker and you succeeded as a studio. What they were able to fit into that, all this extra stuff that we're able to like talk about and dissect and pull apart, that that tells you like the superiority of the filmmaking evident in this of, of the, in this film. Yeah. Of course there's going to be space to tell stories about continental Africa. Of course there's going to be space to tell stories about continental Africa without Western influences, that African people get to tell their own stories. Of course that should be the case. Yeah. This is, I mean, people are celebrating this film not because they wanted to learn about the African continent. People are celebrating this film because they want to be able to take their kids to a superhero movie yeah. that the kids can see themselves represented. That's yeah. ultimately what this boils down to. Well, it's ultimately inclusiveness within the dominant culture. Which is, I yeah. mean, maybe not revolutionary, but it's fine. I mean, it's it's something that we could still appreciate because, I mean, this is the language that kids there's, are speaking. Marvel and superheroes. It's like, it's, it's it, I mean, there's no reason why blackness cannot shape Marvel culture, is what Mar I guess. Blackness already shapes Marvel culture. There you go. Blackness shapes all culture. Yeah. And there's been study after study after study released. Like, Nielsen last year produced a report... I believe it was called Black Millennials Are Shaping the Internet, or something to that effect. Yeah. But basically, black millennials, the, the culture that they bring to the internet, influences popular culture. Yeah. And by saying that black millennials influence the internet, which influences popular culture, you're basically saying black millennials are popular culture. Yeah. So to be able to, to release a film that black millennials can relate to, and Generation Z, etc., imagine what they're going to be, like, you know... Ryan Coogler is, I believe, what, 31 years old, 32 years yeah, old? Yeah, he's really young. Okay. Well, the thing is, like, he's, he's, like, as a filmmaker, he's a puppy. He's a cub. Yeah. But imagine what he's doing for young people who see his movies and are all just like, man, I want to be able to write a movie like that. Yeah, yeah. Or I want to be able to film a movie. Like, I, I don't know. What, what I really don't like, um, whenever there's a, a moment of black joy, like widespread black joy, which yeah. I think this film has helped create, is that there's always going to be people who want to steal that joy. Mm. and obviously yes this film is making millionaires even richer and obviously yes why is it that we have to you know celebrate black culture through the lens of capitalism mm. and what does it really mean for us that we're putting all of our money into this movie and not putting it into let's say improving the communities getting access to healthcare lobbying politicians to make changes I get all that but at the end of the fucking day we're not mules yeah. we're human beings and we should be able to experience joy just like everybody else and to be able to take like to, to look at us and say Oh, uh, y'all coons just y'all y'all just giving all your money to Marvel, huh? Like, they they're not even really telling this film through like an African perspective, and this is really not revolutionary work. Well, fuck you, it's not supposed to be. All right, I just want to have a good time. Like, if with of all the things that we with all the shit that we deal with in our day to day lives, yeah. why is it so wrong that we should be able to take a couple hours out of our days and just enjoy something for the sake of enjoying it? I just I I don't understand that impulse. To snatch away people's joy, and I, I don't fuck with that one one bit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a good way to. End it. <laughs> Sorry, I just totally fucked up the. Yeah, again. my so, man here fucked up the fucked dad. up the. <laughs>